attention. Welcome, mate. Welcome to the, the Faster Podcast. Welcome, Marty Aiken. Thanks, Bill. Glad to be here. Just before we start, a reminder for those listening on the podcast or on Facebook Live to subscribe and recommend the podcast to others. We find most people find out about the podcast when they get recommended by others. So if you could like and share, give us a good rating. That would be pretty good. If you feel like doing that, that would be fantastic. And for those live on the Masters Rowing Group, please uh, send any questions you have in the chat. So Marty, before we, we get into all the good stories, how would you describe what it is, what you do, mate? What currently, well, I'm working for the Swiss, but the, uh, normally I'm retired. So I retired. My last coaching job actually was uh, Athens in 2004. That's right. Now I've got to remember back that far. And then I had a job then at the Scottish Institute of Sport as the performance director. So I was in charge of eight sports there. And then my last job, which I finished eight years ago was at the Victorian Institute of Sport, whereas I was the performance manager there. So in charge of 14 sports and about, I guess there was 20 coaches and 350 athletes. So it was a pretty big job My and I retired and I've come back now. I came back in 2019 to help out the Swiss for eight months in charge of the under 23s and the juniors, because the head coach for that area was moved up to take one of the Olympic boats. And so they had a shortage of coaches. So Christian Stoffer, who's the performance manager and the, uh, I guess he's the CEO as well of, of Swiss rowing. Uh, he asked me if I'd like to come across. So I did that. And then because of COVID, I haven't been back, uh, but I'm back now and I've been back for a month and I'm actually coaching juniors and under 23s again, but not in charge, which is good for me. So it's nice and relaxed. Unbelievable. So, you know, been coaching for so long, what keeps you coming back? I mean, you're retired, you're driving around Europe, you've, you're visiting different places. So what keeps you in rowing, mate? Well, I started rowing when I was 12 years old. I was coxswain to start with at school. And then I really stopped full-time rowing, if you like, with coaching and things I said in 2004, but it's still involved in the sport. So in Scotland, according the, at the Scottish Institute of Sport, obviously there wasn't rowing, but the Victorian Institute of Sport, there was. So Chris O'Brien, who's a pretty famous coach, he was working for me and a couple of other coaches. So sort of always been involved in on retirement. The one thing I did do was uh, I was I selected for the Rio Olympics for the Australian Olympic team. So that sort of got me back in a little bit and you know, I thought, well, yeah. why not? Why not do a bit of coaching when Christian rang me? And now, I mean, you can't beat Switzerland delivers a place anyway. So, and particularly San and those that haven't been there, it's probably, and I've been to a lot of rowing venues throughout the world. It's the best place that I've ever been for training. I mean, you get out in the motorboat and every day you look at the, the water's great and you're surrounded by mountains air's clean. It's just brilliant. Yeah. So, you know, it's not bad to go and do it. And I'm only doing three days a week, which is good until they do the training camps. And then I got a little bit more. So we head off for the four or five days in between. Yeah. How did it all get started for you, mate? When, when did you first? Well, I, was playing, I, was actually, yeah, I was actually playing cricket and for some reason they, and those who don't know, there'll be a lot of Americans, I guess, who don't really know much about cricket, but the cricket. For some reason, they put me as the wicketkeeper and I was the smallest guy in the whole team and I kept getting hit in the head with the ball and the brother was rowing. He said, why don't you come down and try coxing? So that's what I did. And I did that from, I was 12 years old when I started. And then I also coxed at the club and then I was, uh, coxing the, in the national junior team at the world championships and the national senior team at the world championships. What year was that, mate? What year was that? Yeah. 1973, I was still at school and then 1978. I made a comeback 
to Coxing when I was asked by the guys from our club and we were selected as the Cox Four. So I went to the world championships in Carapiro, but I'd already rode myself. And at that point I turned lightweight, but I wasn't a very big lightweight. So I was usually stuck in the bow seat of the eight just to make up the weight for, save the weight for the rest of the guys there. But I was also racing on my bike as a professional at the time. So you're racing um, on the bike as well. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Australia, in Australia as a professional, I was teaching, but I was only teaching probably 10 hours a week. And then the rest of the time I was running the rowing program for the school, as well as at Mercantile Rowing Club as the head coach, but had plenty of time, the school holidays and things where, and if I wasn't coaching, I was usually out on my bike. So I ended up racing. And in the, once you turned 23 in Australia, back in those days, you had to turn professional. So there wasn't any racing really, except for masters other than that. And so I just joined that and did the racing on the road and on the track and I loved it. It was great. So back at the Victoria Institute of Sport and at Mercantile Rowing Club, who were some of the athletes that you remember working with? Well, when I was at Mercantile, I was head coach and they have a thing called the King's Cup, which is the major eights race between each state. And so I coached the King's Cup eight in, I got to keep remembering all these things, 86, 87, 88. And we were undefeated really in almost every race. But with the guys that I had, it was Jimmy Tompkins, who most of you will know, Mick Mackay, who almost everyone knows as well, I guess, from all the rowing. There was a guy called Sam Patton in it. He was an Olympic uh, bronze medalist from Los Angeles in the eight. Also went to the same school that I went to. So he started rowing at the same school. And the other guy was Andrew Cooper, was also in that crew. And so basically it was what they called the awesome foursome. Mm. And so I coached them from when they're under 23s and then into senior ranks. And then in 1988, there was a bit of a debacle on the selection with the Olympics. And they decided that they'd rather go with the 86, eight, which one rather than I had a really good eight, which actually had Peter Anthony in it, who most of you will know, Olympic gold medalist, uh, another lightweight, wasn't he? That went into the heavyweight division. Yep. That's right. And he, he won in the double in Barcelona Olympics. So he was in it. There was a guy called Gary Gallick. So we had this, who was silver medalist from Los Angeles in the quad. So we had all these medalists and future medalists in the eight and I, and we won the national championships by 10 seconds, but. I said to the head coach at the time, who, who coaches the top crew, once we finish the, the club season or the state season, they then go into the national team. And I said to him, you should take the, this eight because it won the national title by 10 seconds. You know, it's got all these guys and said, oh no, I'd rather go with the 86 eight, which had half of those guys in it and, and another group of guys. And they came fifth at the Olympics. So it was a bit of a debacle really. I didn't need to coach the crew because I had down to 23s. But I felt that that was probably a real loss. And all the guys after that were really disappointed. Jimmy and Mick and the others were all pretty disappointed. So they retired. And when they retired in 1988, at the end of 1988, I then was offered a job at University of London. Okay. As the head coach. So I went there. And then the guys came back actually in 1990 and wrote again. And that's how they became formed the Awesome Foursome. Yeah. Then uh, they went on in 92, 96. And then Dragin came in, didn't he, in 96? Yeah. Yeah, Nick Green came in as well because Sam Patton was doing medicine at the time. So he rode in the world championship crew. And I think they won the Cox four that year in 1991, uh, it was. It might've been 90, 90 or 91 anyway, around that time. And he had, was doing medicine and he was told that if he didn't stop uh, rowing, that he'd have to start his medicine course again. He's now an orthopedic surgeon. So needless to say, I think it took him 14 years to finish medicine, but he got there. It was just, yeah, they were a good bunch of guys and 
you know, that was probably fond memory. It probably my first senior A was when I coached the well, University of London. We, we had a pretty strong group of young guys when I first started and a lot of junior gold medalists. And so we formed an eight and we actually raced at Lucerne in the eight. At Henley, we won the Cox and Coxes four, the elite level there, which is this, the Prince Philip and the Stewards. And then we formed an eight for Lucerne. And in those days in Lucerne, you could enter the, the international regatta with a club crew. Mm-hmm. So we turned up with the University of London eight and the national eight was there, the British eight, which had some of our, our guys in it. And we, they came third and we came fourth in the final and we're only a canvas behind and we beat USA, Russia, all the other national crews. So what transpired after that, they, they turned the, their eight into two fours and we were picked as the eight with a couple of changes. And we went on to win the bronze medal by a photo finish to the U S U S it was, uh, West Germany first. And then because we and West back in those days, I think it was East Germany second. I could be wrong on that. And then we were third and USA fourth on that. So that was probably my first, what well, was my first international medal. So I always remember that one. Okay. And particularly with a young bunch of guys, the average age of the crew was only 19. Johnny Searle was in that, who won the gold medal in the, in the Cox pair in Barcelona, Tim Foster, another Olympic gold medalist later on. He rode with Redgrave and Pinson in the four and yeah, a number of other guys that went on rowing for a number of years for Great Britain. So it was a good group of guys. Basically an under 23 A's. Well, it was almost under 20. <laughs> only one guy, only one guy over 20. <laughs> Some of them were fresh out of the juniors first year. Yeah. Where'd you go after University of London, Marty? Yeah, then I was offered the head coach job in Switzerland. So I went there about March or April in 1994. And then from then I stayed there until I did two Olympics with them. I did obviously the Barcelona Olympics with the British. And then the next Olympics I did was Atlanta as head coach of the, the Swiss and also Sydney head coach of the Swiss. Okay. So that's where I think you also coached a junior crew to, to, to gold and the juniors. Yeah. When I first arrived, Harry Marn, who was there before me, one of my best mates, he'd started with a junior eight and it went quite well, but didn't make the final. And so I inherited that when I first arrived and we worked on it and made a couple of changes to it. And they ended up winning the junior gold medal, which Switzerland's never done before. Yeah. No, uh, it was a bit of a shock, I think to the Germans, cause they're used to winning that. And, uh, and the Brits always fight it out as well, but we managed to knock them both off to win the gold medal. So that was good. And they were in the same year, actually, we had a, a, a junior women's double that won the gold medal by 10 seconds. So it was a really good year for us. And it was a good way to kick off. My time in Switzerland, because I was coaching the senior A guys, but I made a point of also co-coaching the junior eight. Yeah. And those, those juniors have gone on to do bigger and better things. I think Christian Stoff is now the, the head of, or the director of Swiss rowing and it's a small world. Yeah. He's my boss now. <laughs> <laughs> You're his coach. Now who's your boss? Yeah, it was a while ago though. <laughs> Marty, who were some of the coaches, you know, that you, you met in, on your journey through the VIS, then, you know, University of London, and then you mentioned Harry Mann, that you, you remember, uh, there's a couple of things that you took away from conversations with them that you've then built into your rowing coaching philosophy or principles. I suppose I have, but I mean, I knew them, uh, I knew Harry really well. So we were really good mates. So it's sort of, you evolve, you listen to what he has to say. And, you know, we used to swap a lot of stories and things and I couldn't, 
uh, put my finger on anything in particular because it evolves over a period of time and your coaching style evolves over a period of time as well. So with Harry, we used to talk hours and hours rowing. My wife used to love it, <laughs> but usually it was over a beer, but Harry wasn't a big drinker. So I used to have to drink for him instead. Uh, he was good. You know, the other guys that, that I had conversations with over the year, Chris Korsanowski in the oh, US, because I went over in uh, 1988, I had an uh, Australian eight that raced against, we were invited to the US because we didn't, those guys didn't go to the Olympics. We actually went to the US and raced there and Chris was coaching the American. I had just won the world championship the year before. So I had quite a few conversations with him when I was there and I've, you know, over the years I've had conversations with him and raced against him a number of times now in the eight when I was coaching with, for GB, but the, there's been a lot of things that, you know, you learn, you learn your style really by just doing it and then by you make mistakes. And so you learn from that. Yeah. Uh, but so it's good to have someone like Harry or back in those days to say, okay, particularly with a Swiss, how did you handle this bit? You know, how did you do that? Because the politics are, you know, in most countries are always fairly difficult. The other one that probably has influenced my current coaching a fair bit is Chris O'Brien because Chris O'Brien worked for me. And he's easily, as in my opinion, the best coach Australia's ever produced without doubt. And uh, sadly he's not coaching anymore. He's got, he's actually the performance director for Australian gymnastics of all things, but it's a pity because it'd be really good if he got back into coaching, but Chris, I looked at his programs and we discussed quite a lot. And so a lot of my programs that I'm doing now, are very similar to what he did. Although in the Swiss system, the, the program last year. Last time I was there and this time the program's pretty well set, but you can, from the uh, head coach of each group, but you can actually modify it a little bit as well along the way. So some of the things that I've introduced into the program, for example, the other day, the junior trials, the eight, the eight didn't make the final. And so the, as a coach, as we were talking about and going, okay, what are we going to do with the eight tomorrow morning for training? Cause there's only seven eights and, and you know, they're a young group of guys and we just thought we'd give it a go for a bit of experience and see how they go. So what I sent them out to do was a piece that Harry and I discussed at one point and he used it with his Olympic aid a couple of times and that you do 15 seconds on 15 seconds off and you do, I introduced that probably in, and that was after Harry and I discussed it and we're looking at some kayakers and what kayakers were doing. And so 15 seconds on 15 seconds off and you do five of those, then you have a five minute break. Uh, just paddling and then go again. And what that does, I tested that years ago. And if you do that, you know, in 15 seconds, you don't build up much lactate. Mm -hmm. So after the, after probably the final set, five times five, you do. And after that final set, the lactate peaks at about two and a half millimoles and that's it. So you can do repeated efforts at quite high stroke rate. So it's about 15 seconds flat out. So you running start and you hit quite a high stroke rate by the end of the 15 seconds. So it's five or six strokes, depending on the stroke rate that you're doing but you can keep repeating that and the cost in lactate is very low and something we picked up from the kayakers and Harry and I sort of worked on that. And then he used it a number of times in 19, I've got to think which year now, 2000 when he was coaching the British eight, the one. And I remember that one time when, when he did that was actually in Sarnen when I was there with the Swiss team. And so we discussed that a while ago and then I'd been using it and then he started using it as well. So there's sort of things that you learn, you, you listen to what the other guys have to say, and then, and you, you use it, you know, your own way, really. And I've been coaching that long. It's really hard to remember where you get most of the information from, but I'm always keen to learn. And I certainly learned a lot from Chris O'Brien. 
as do well. Have, like, do you have like a, a menu, a black book where you just write all this stuff down that you turn to, you think, okay, here's a, some good sessions I used to do, or is it all just coming from the, the gray cells? It comes from the gray cells because I do remember, I mean, it's, it's really funny being back coaching again and there's all sorts of things, you know, like the other day I was coaching the, the junior double had a bit of a shocker in the second 500 of the race. They run the heat and then they had a bit of a shocker in the, in the next race and, uh, in the semifinal and didn't really get going and they didn't lose any distance in the last thousand, but they were four and a half seconds down and whoever the, the lead of the race there were four crews across and it was changing, but they weren't losing any distance. So they had to pull out out of the bag, what are you going to do now? And so for me, it sort of comes automatically. And so I had to rev them up basically and get them to really go in the first. And, you know, I can't repeat some of the words I was using, even though the Swiss can speak good English. I think they understood what I meant. You sort of rev them up and that's the sort of thing that comes from either your instinct or it comes from, you've done it before and rev them up and they won the, the small final by five seconds, just got out really hard and just cleared off basically. But that's sort of thing that, you know, you can't pre-plan and you just have to know what to do. You, know, you can't write that down. Okay. The crew lost this. So therefore you have to do that. I just know, you know, from my experience and you, and you, you learn, and I don't tend to forget much. And so, uh, I've had to use that on the odd occasion. I mean, one of the, one of the most interesting one was in my, speaking about Chris Kosinowski, I was coaching the British aid in 1991 and we finished third in Lucerne and we're only a, a small margin behind. I think it was Canada, no, Germany and Canada. And I think we beat the U S anyway. So I was there at the world championships and we had a shocker of a heat. We were favorites for the heat. And we came fourth, China won the, the heat and we came fourth. So I had to basically uh, find a way to, to turn this around. And as I went up to have a look at the draw for the repercharge, charge, because it was first two from the repercharge, charge, Chris Kosinowski came up and he said, he looked at the board and he said, oh, good. We've got you. Sorry. We've got you. So we had Canada and the U S and ourselves in the one repercharge. charge. So it was, we'd had a shocker in the heat. So, and Johnny Searle was in there. Greg Searle was there. are a number of good oarsmen in there and in that boat. And I even, uh, Martin Cross, who everyone will know from the commentating. So Martin Cross, that was his thing. There's a guy called Richard Stanhope, whose last medal was 1980 Olympics, silver medal in the eight. So a couple of old guys and a whole lot of young ones. Anyway, so that really revved me up when Chris said that. So, oh, great. We've got you meaning in other words, oh, that's an easy repercharge charge for us. So we made sure it wasn't. Yeah. And Chris, Chris did funny enough, Chris didn't make the final, but I actually, <laughs> for the first time ever, I sat down with the crew and the pretty experienced guys sat down for two hours in a room and we nutted out what we we're going to do. And uh, what we came up with was uh, a solution for the start, which I actually is one of my secrets. So I'm not actually going to tell anyone. But we came up with a, with a tactic and we got out of the blocks much, much better than we did, but we were still behind, but that wasn't the point because we we're pretty strong through the rest of the course normally. And so we saw off the U S about halfway and we lost to, uh, Canada by probably a canvas and then, so therefore we through to the final and we got the bronze medal in the final behind Germany and uh, Canada again. So we had to turn that around, but I've never done that before or since sat down with the crew, but just the sort of thing that came out in my head. Okay. What are we going to do? And sat there, you know, I, I do like to talk as you probably guessed, but also as input from pretty experienced guys in that crew. And, uh, it's something I'll never forget because I've used that tactic a number of times since, but that was something that I invented and it was just through talking with the other guys and we came up with this solution. 
And that's something I've shared with the Swiss on the odd occasion when I've been coaching them. And so I remember back to, uh, last time I was here in, well, in Switzerland, 2019, we didn't lose one start after we did that. Every time we went out and on the weekend, most of our crews were pretty quick out of the blocks. Obviously not my double like in the, in the semi-final. I think they were a bit complacent. I mean, so, most, yeah, that, most of the crews were pretty quick out of the blocks. That's if we could see them on the TV, mind you. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Well, they are these days. And so if you're not, if you're not onto it out of the blocks, then you're wasting your time. Basically you've got to be in the race for a start. And Jürgen Grobler, that's it. Sorry. I meant, I've got to mention Jürgen. Uh, Jürgen, I worked with Jürgen for a number of years in the early days when he first came out of the East Germany and we set room in a couple of regattas and things. And so I picked his brains about the program and my basic program evolved and so, same with the British program evolved from his program and it hasn't altered a lot over the years. He just refined it a bit and things like that, but it's still a really good program. How would you describe it, Marty? Uh, it's mainly, uh, endurance work. So basically the program is you'll do steady state rate 18 or in single, you do it at 20, but rate 18 with a boat speed. And so you'll do 20 K or 22 K in the morning. Then in the afternoon, there might be all after that might be weights. And then in the afternoon you do another 20 K or, or 18, 16, sometimes next day, 20 K again, and there'll be some pieces in that but only 12 stroke pieces or some 20 stroke pieces sometimes, but not many. But then there'll be some sort of work out of the boat, usually a bike ride or something, and then another row. And then we do time runs. So time runs would be on every third day and that's done on the prognostic times. So you might do three, two thousands. So you do the first thousand, let's say at 20, the next 522, then 24, they row back to the start. Then they do the next 2000 at maybe 24, 26, 28 and so on. And then, so you do that and you time every boat in your group and then, uh, use prognostic times to then get a rank order and it's invaluable, but Jürgen taught us all of that. He also taught us about the prognostic times also taught all of us about the boat speed required the 80% or 78% of boat speed at stroke rate 18. And that's 80% of the prognostic. So if you take Zeno as an example. Uh, his program was set straight on, straight on the prognostic time. So if I send him out to do 20 K, then the boat speed would be for him about 204 mm -hmm. and the mornings we do 202 and he'd rate 20. It was interesting with that because I timed in Sydney Olympics, uh, Rob Waddell was on the same course and the same time training when we were. So he was only just in front of us. So I used to time his 500s. And Zeno's 500s, and they were doing exactly the same time. And no other sculler in the thing, in that field was doing that. So they were doing 202s, you know, just prior to the Olympic game racing, they were doing 202s for each 500 meter piece, not 500 meters in steady state, rating 20, both of them rated 20 in a single. So that's, that's what Jürgen taught me. And probably that's the most valuable thing of anything is, is the training program. Cause before that, when I was coaching the British Open before Jürgen came, so like, in, for example, in 1989, we used to do a fair bit of intensive work and uh, not much, not much what you call normal steady state. You know, we do easy paddles, but we go out and do six, five hundreds or three, one thousands, that sort of thing, or 20 minute pieces. And don't, now I'm doing a lot more of that with the Swiss team because they're using more, a training program based on what New Zealand do, because Ian Wright's the head coach in Switzerland at the moment. And he was head coach before I went in 2019 as well. So their program's a little bit different to that. 
So I, I have to do their program, which is fine. That seems to be working fine. So there's two different ways to do it. Jürgen's one where the emphasis and Paul Thompson was the same, the emphasis on steady state and endurance work. And the other side of it is the more intense side of that. Marty, can you share a few experiences, what it was like coaching Zeno? So you took him up to 96 gold medal and up to 2000 silver against Rob Waddell that you were saying. Yep. What, what was that like? What did, what did you pick up that Zeno was doing that other rowers didn't do and what it was like to work with him? He was great to work with. I mean, he's actually, despite the fact that he sounds a bit loud, he's actually quite a quiet guy. And I think he, he sort of comes across a bit loud because he's, he went to Brown University and to adapt there. They had, used to have a go at him about his accent. And so he sort of thought of a way of doing that was just sort of being a bit louder and, you know, in your face slightly more, but it's not like that normally. And when you get to know him, I mean, he's the best, best guy I've ever coached, clearly from the point of view of dedication. If you told him to do things, he'd absolutely do them. And so when I was coaching him, I'd be four weeks at, in Switzerland working there. And then I'd fly over to Newport beach for two weeks and coach him for two weeks. So that's leading up to 96. And then he would come to Switzerland for three months and actually live in the house. So we had a rowing center there. He'd live upstairs, but there was no one in there during the week. All the, all the rowers used to work or train from the clubs during the week. And so I said to him, well, okay, mate, you can eat with us. But you, I'll do the barbecue. My, Julie, my wife will do the salad and you'll do the dishes. And he was fine. And uh, he was great. And probably the easiest guy I've ever worked with. And the only guy I've ever coached that used to say, come in, get out of the boat and say, thanks for coaching. So, you know, you don't, you normally get that, but his skill level and his ability to train was amazing. So I'll give you a funny story. His mother was a bit worried when he was in Newport beach because he was training all the time. So, and his mother's pretty, pretty gregarious or she was sadly she's passed away but she she decided that he needed to meet a girl so he so she said right i'll pay for a, a fitness gym you know you can go along to the gym you can go along two nights a week i'll pay for that you can meet a girl there at the gym probably so then i said right i'll do that and we're already doing weight training he rang me up and he said oh you know mum said oh, i should go to the gym and i said well you can do that if you like it it's up to you you know i don't care really you're already doing three trainings a day but you can do four if you like and so he did, he went along anyway. So I went over the next trip. He said, come down to the gym and have a look, see what I'm doing. So I go down to the gym and there he is doing crunches and back arches for an hour, nonstop, right? Cause he wanted to get a six pack. And uh, so needless to say, he didn't meet a girl down at the gym. So, uh, but that's the sort of thing he did two nights a week. He'd go and do an hour of sitting, sit ups, crunches, back arches, the whole lot. And, uh, that was an extra. So yeah, he was amazing capacity to train and the skill level in the boat. For example, we do, we did a little bit of, uh, K one kayaking because of K one. And when you first do that, uh, because out of the boat club in Newport beach, they, it was also the kayak center. So the U S kayak team was, was based there. So we got hold of a K one and you take the seat out. So the balance is a bit better, but in a K one, you have to keep your nose in the middle of the boat and otherwise you'll tip in, you know, that's if you're learning. And so he learned a lot about balance and about keeping your head still, or, you know, in other words, the nose in the middle of the boat. And then eventually he could paddle it, not after very long either, he could paddle it with the seat in. Because if you take the seat out of K1, it lowers the center of gravity. With the seat in, it's a bit higher. And, the, and if you've ever tried to paddle a K1, it's not so easy. They're very tough. Particularly yeah. at low speed. But he was able to do that. So we incorporated that in training. That was his suggestion. Okay. Uh, but we used to bike ride together quite a lot. 
which was good. So we could do a lot of training together as well. And his program was, was pretty tough. I've got to say, but it was a lot of endurance and that's what we built. And then when we did the pieces, they were always high quality. Really. So the, the endurance to high intensity mix, what was it like, Marty? Yeah, same as Jürgen's program, basically. That's the one I described before. So you've got the endurance for two days and then we do the time runs. So Newport Beach, we had markers on the, there's not a course there, but it's in the marina. So we had markers of where we, he'd do the rate change, but I'd be in the motorboat anyway. And we couldn't compare him to other boats until he came to Switzerland. And then we do the time runs. And of course, I had the Gear Brothers at the same time. And, and so in the team, within the team, I remember we were in Oak Ridge and we are doing the time runs in Oak Ridge and the Gears and Zeno had basically the same percentage, the highest percentage in the team. And both of them obviously turned around and won the Olympic gold medal. Yeah. So in the same year. So yeah, it was good. And they, they were another group that was, that I did all the technical coaching for because their coach wasn't actually a coach. He was more a manager and that's what they needed because the two brothers used to fight hammer and tongs all the time. Um, <laughs> and so they, they needed a referee. They needed a referee. I'll give you an idea. Like Marcus and Mickey, they had used to have an imaginary, well, I think Mickey was the one behind this, had an imaginary line in the middle of the boat. So when you washed the boat down, he only washed his half and then the other half had to be washed, washed by Marcus, but that's brothers. And, uh, but it was great having two Olympic gold medal boats or pers prospective gold medal boats because it gave us a yardstick. And so therefore every piece we did for the year before and that year, we could actually compare and know how the other boats are going in comparison to that as well, or, or something needed to change in the program. Yeah. And so that was great. And Marty, have you, you, you've written a fair bit, I think, in, I've read a couple of publications actually, where you've been quoted at the lactate testing on Xeno and how many hundreds, possibly thousands of, of lactate tests and you developed, is it true that you developed your own protocol, so to speak, of on-water testing? Yeah, sort of, we used to, um, once again, from Jürgen, he introduced us to the actual doing the lactate testing. Okay. Uh, he got a bit confused though, because I can't remember what the other one was. It was urea testing as well. And he, his translation of urea came out of something completely different. He, completely dumbfounded when the, the physiologist kept coming to him, giving these scores, like instead of the urea being, let's say 1.2 or something like that, it was 15. And Jürgen was really worried that they're all over training. And then eventually we got a dictionary out and found out what urea actually meant in German. And so he was telling us in German what it was. He didn't know what the English word was. So, but he taught us in the early days about the lactate testing. And so therefore I evolved with that. And then, then I, we bought our own machine in Switzerland and the machine was really good. Not one of the portable ones. I, I've never really used the portable one. I, I didn't know whether they were accurate enough, but the machine, the Eppendorf machine we had was accurate within 1%. Mm -hmm. And so, and that's important. If you've got a, you're looking at two millimoles, it needs to be really accurate mm -hmm. because if it's, if it's out by anything, then, then it's wrong. It's not a precise thing, but what we found, Jürgen said, that most people should be training at about 1.5 millimoles. That was the starting point. And then we worked in the area from that point on, when I went to Switzerland and I had the machine and I was doing it myself rather than the physiologist, we were able to determine what we felt was the best lactate. And then we could test that by doing the step test. So you do a step test up to, and where it crosses the anaerobic threshold at what we call four millimoles, but you see a breakaway point. So you do step test, and this is really testing memory now. I think in Switzerland, we did uh, six, four minute steps. And so the first one might be at a split of two minutes and, and then going down and then each step you have 
in between the steps, take the lactate. And then you'll see at one point, all of a sudden the graph starts to rise really quickly. Mm. Yeah. And that's, that's where anaerobic threshold is around that point where, before it starts to rise. And so if you combine that, we could test that and then do the training, test the training and then find out whether the program was working or not, because you try to shift that graph to the right. So in other words, you're producing more Watts on the ergo, the less lactate. So you did the so test on the ergo or on the water? No, we did on both, but it's really difficult to do it in the boat. All we did in the boat was actually set the boat speed and then take a lactate. That's all you could do. And setting a boat speed, you need a place that the water temperature stays the same. So we didn't have GPS in those days and it still, it still applies to GPS. If you row in cold water, it goes slower. But the good thing about Newport Beach was that it's the water temperature stays almost the same all year round and it doesn't really alter there. And so I used to take the water temperature and then know that, and it really didn't, didn't alter much. So I just left it because seawater anyway there and the currents alter each in different types of times of the year. So for example, one of the currents comes down in the summer and the other one comes up in the winter. So it sort of balances out because water temperature and boat speed are quite critical. So in winter, if you try and do 202 in a single, you're not going to be able to do it at strike rate 20, but Zeno, I was able to do that with the rest of them. We had to modify that. So it's difficult to do it in the boat, but the most accurate way of doing it is on the ergo doing the step test. So when we went to GB, we did three, six minute steps. I think I can't, yeah, it's quite a while ago now. I haven't had to do a lactate test like that for since, uh, 2004. So it was a while ago. And the juniors, you, the junior squads who are working with, they don't bother with the lactate. They just, uh, they don't have a machine and they don't do it. So they're, they're doing a different program. You know, it's more intensity. That one was really purely based on the East German model, which mm -hmm. is the endurance. And like, it's two different ways to do things. There's no doubt. I mean, New Zealand do it a different way and they've been really successful. Jürgen's done it his way and he's been really successful. Paul Thompson's done it his way, which is similar to Jürgen's and he's been really successful. So there's two different ways really you can do it. And there's probably a middle ground as well, but the only one that you can really test to see if it's working is either you look at the 2000 meter ergo score and really that doesn't shift much, you know, in a season, you'd be lucky to get the top guys moving much, but on the, the lactate test. Yeah. If you're doing endurance work, that lactate test is really good on the ergo. And we used to use it. The doctors would look at it. We give them the results because we do it once a month and the doctors would get the results. And so if someone came down with a flu or a cold, we'd test them and then test them about every three or four days because sub max. So we'd only really push them to four millimoles and then see if they could get the graph back to anywhere near it. And so they're ready to train again. So the doctors and Redgrave, Steve Redgrave's wife was a doctor in Great Britain. So we would send the results to her or Richard Budget, who's now the Olympic doctor. So we'd send the results to them and they'd tell us whether they thought they were ready to go. I mean, we could see it, but we wanted them to confirm rather than push them straight back into the boat again. So it was really valuable from that point of view. Now, Marty, you, you know all about cycling. They do huge volumes, a lot more training probably in, in hours than that a rower does, but rowing is, is probably close to maxing out physiologically. Like everyone's pushing the limit in a lot of countries. What's the next step that we need to take as a sport to really start to put a dent in the, in the world's best times, because they, they appear to have plateaued for a while now. Yeah, it always does that. And then all of a sudden there'll be a rush again. I mean, sometimes they plateau because you're not on a course that's fast, right? And Lucerne, 
the sand was traditionally the fast course, but it's not often you get a, a tailwind there. You know, it happens, but not all the time. Also, you need the water temperature. So the course needs to be warm and it also needs to have a wind. I mean, the other day in Varese, the, the double road, I think uh, 624, junior double, that's six seconds off the world record. And wind wasn't very strong at all. So that's course fast. So you get a good time. 21 degrees, I think the water, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty warm. And, but yeah, the question was, okay, what's the next step? Well, personally, I don't really know what the next step's going to be because someone will, it'll evolve at some point, but the, the technology is not really changing very much. So the boat's weight's obviously set. It's down to really training. And at the moment it's training three times a day, all the top guys and even the juniors training three times a day. Not when the juniors are at home, but on the weekends, they're doing juniors and senior Bs are doing three, three training sessions a day. So two in the boat and one on land. Another way that we used to do things was do a lot of cycling when I was coaching and the, and the Swiss are doing that at the moment as well in the program. And a lot of the countries do that. I think because I was racing on the bike, I introduced that back in Australia and Jimmy Tompkins and, and those guys used to, we used to have Sundays off, but Sundays wasn't really off. Cause we used to go bike riding. So we go and do 85 Ks or something. And I invited uh, Jimmy and one of the other guys to do a race on the thing. So they couldn't have a number on cause it was a pros of club race. And the, uh, all the other guys, there must've been 80 guys start. I said to them, okay, so they, they're probably going to grade this. So it'll be A, B and C grade. You can go on C grade. So they turned up and the, they decided the club decided to have a mass start. So everyone was together. So we headed off and I think there were 20 of us left after about 50 Ks. And it was about 120 K race and we're on a circuit. And next thing you know, Jimmy Tompkins comes up through the bunch and all the guys go, who's this, like, who's this guy? And I said, oh, it's just one of the rows. No worries. He's not, he's not racing. And apparently one of my mates was at the back and got him to sit on him. So he just sat at the back while we were all swapping turns. And so I said to Jimmy, you better get on the back again, because we're about to go hard up a hill. And that, that's the last we saw of him actually, but he did a really good job on it. But the, yeah, the cross training is something I think that is really important because it's interesting. You know, you can get boring in the boat. You can get injured in the boat. Ribs are the most common thing. So you need to have another alternative and cycling fortunately has been one of those things that I've used a lot with every team I've been in. And also we, with the Swiss, I started doing cross country ski camps. We got free accommodation in Davos and St. Moritz from the Olympic committee and no one was really taking it up on the other sports. So we'd go there for, uh, three or four weeks training camp and just go to Davos and then sometimes St. Moritz. So they do cross country. I know the Norwegians no doubt do that, but a lot of the, the countries are doing that as well. Now, if they're in a Nordic country or if they're in a European country with enough snow, but the cross training is something that can really help rowing. And specifically we do the cycling because it's a low impact and you can do it for long hours. So for example, when I rode with Zeno, he do. 20, 20 Ks or 25 Ks in the morning. And then we'd ride for four or five hours in the afternoon. And then we go, go back in the boat again sometimes after that. So if we did a long session, we would do on the bike quite if it'd be three hours and then do the row or sometimes we'd do longer. In fact, we did a race. We did a race one time in Tucson, Arizona. I was on my bike and he had his wife on a tandem and yeah. they, uh, yeah. <laughs> so every time we got on the flat, I'd sit behind him. And every time I got to the hill, of course, tandem's not as quick up the hill. So then they catch me again on the flat and I'd sit back on again. We did a hundred mile race that day. So yeah, it was good fun. Yeah, you're keeping but you keep a, a lot of endurance, aren't you? And like you said, less yeah. stress. But yeah, that's right. And then obviously weight training. 
We used to do a lot of heavyweights and then we went to endurance weights because of injuries. I mean, I, when I was coaching Tim Foster at University of London years ago and in the British, he hurt his back doing heavyweights. So we decided to phase that out. So he hurt his back for the first time. He hurt his back a number of times actually in the early days. And not sure if, I think he did have an operation on it, but he, we phased out that and went to endurance weights and now it's back to heavyweights again with a lot of countries, which is good because we've now got uh, strength and conditioning coaches, whereas we were the coaches. Mm. I remember with the guys, the original awesome force and when they were under 23 and, and those first couple of years in the senior team that we used to go to the Hawthorne weightlifting gym and that's a, actually a weightlifting club. And all the Olympic lifters were there. So they'd share the, the platform with those guys so that they do their set. Then our guys would uh, do it in front of them and they'd coach them. They oh, coach them on correct technique. And, and we had a really good rapport with them. We used to go twice a week and the coaching was excellent, you know, with the Olympic lifters. So yeah, that was, that was invaluable. And so that's why we started doing the heavy weights when I went to University of London. But as I said, with a few injuries, they were in there. They're actually doing, at the time I was told they were doing uh, clean and jerk poker, right? So in other words, they're trying to outlift each other and not using technique. And that's how he hurt his back. Yeah. So, uh, and I wasn't there at the time because of what they were doing is a bit of an extra for fun. So, but there, I think it's, it's hard to know where the next, what thing's going to come from, because at the moment, let's say, take all the masters you got working at the moment, you know, you just need to have a program and do it properly and mm -hmm. don't think, try and be fancy, you know, pick a program that suits you. And then you just stick to that. And then, then you'll come up, not trying to change things. So I had a coach once that worked for me at University of London. He went down to Petaluca. I sent him down with the senior B8, who actually won the gold medal at the match to seniors later on. I sent him down with the senior B8. And uh, apparently, I was away with the senior A team. And apparently, he talked to a coach in the bar. So the next morning, he'd be out there trying to do that. And then this is before the racing. You know, we'll row this way. Or we'll do this fast with the hands. And, you know, this is a complete disaster. And so I had to remove him as the coach basically, because, you know, they're all oh, the Russians do that. So let's do that today. Well, let's do this tactic. You know, you've got to have a philosophy and stick with it. And, and then you make minor modifications to it. If you don't believe in your philosophy, then, then you need to learn from another philosophy from someone else. Yeah. Usually yeah. most coaches have got their way that they like doing things and then they're willing to be open to that, but you don't make wholesale changes overnight. No, you just make small changes. Exactly. So Marty, what, what are your thoughts around, around technique to moving the boat, your, your principles, when you're talking to a crew, if you're talking to some masters rowers, what would you be saying that this is what I like to focus on? These are my principles. Yeah. Well, obviously, you know, the, the stroke actually starts from the finish. And so with the finish, it's, you know, the, the movement of the hands away, the body, the slide. Okay. So basically you need to have your full body reach and your arms straight by quarter slide. That's basically my philosophy. And then nothing changes going into the catch. And then from the catch, the drive is initially legs and then legs and back through the middle and then last parts with the arms. So you see, if you watch Zeno rowing, he's slightly early on the arms, but there's a reason for that because he's incredibly strong and he's, he was able to do that. But if you look at Langer, he raced against, Langer was really early on the arms. But any sculler, I can tell you now, if you're not as strong as those guys, then you need to leave the arms straight. And the last thing you do when the legs and the back are finished is the arms, right? And not let the arms come in too soon. If you let the arms come in too soon, it takes either the power away from the, the body or the legs. Something has to give. I mean, you wouldn't do, like if you're hanging from a, from a chin up, it's easier to do that with straight arms than it is with bent arms. So it's the same principle. Okay. So 
it's more or less the same principle, but that's the idea. So the last parts with the arms, but you'll see a lot of the German coaches are doing initially opening back and then the legs driving right through the stroke. I don't do it that way. I do it, it more or less what the Fairbairn technique is. Mm-hmm. Most of you don't know who Fairbairn is. Fairbairn was a coach. I think at Cambridge it was, we went to my same school, funnily enough. It would have been yeah. yeah, Scotch College, Melbourne. Uh, and I remember the name on the boat. There was a boat named after him. But when I spoke to Jürgen, he told me that the East Germans, when they first developed their technique, which is pretty similar to the way that I'm describing, right? It was actually from Fairbairn. They got a book on Fairbairn and that's right. what they modeled their rowing stroke on, which is interesting. Because I think Fairbairn off the top of my head was what, 1912, mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. And and he had a particular model. And if you look that up, it'd be interesting just to compare that. I haven't bothered in a number of years, but the, the Fairbairn technique is pretty much what I described. Now, there'd be slight differences to that. I think they were quite extreme with the body back in those days. And the East Germans certainly were. East Germans, you watch them, was really on the leg, then legs and back, and then the arms. You mentioned uh, weightlifting and the strength. Have you got any favorite strength workouts that you, you like your athletes to do? Not really, because now we've got a strength and conditioning coach who does all of that. Although I had to run a lot of recessions, but yeah, yeah no, not personal really. favorites. <laughs> well, what we used to do years ago when we were doing heavy weights, we'd do, let's have a think, squats, then cleans, and then uh, clean and jerk. Or cleans rather, not clean and jerk. So we just do those and we do five sets of five and just increasing and then writing those down and just increasing it. That was worked quite well. We're doing a similar thing now with the Swiss. And uh, I'm not sure with the Brits and things what they're doing. But that Jürgen tended to do heavy weights as well. But with, with the British, we switched to endurance weights because basically we didn't have the equipment and mm-hmm. some of the areas. So we did a lot of endurance weights and we did circuits and that seemed to work quite well too. Marty, how do you anal- like to analyze performance? What do you specifically track and monitor? You've talked about 80% world's best time, stroke yep. load 18 or 20. Yep. What else are you looking at? No, that's it. That's all, all we look at, right? It's, and also comparing to the other boats. So the time runs we do, we publish all the results. And so the guys know where they're going. Because if you take some of the crews I've had over the years that have struggled, they, they're always down on the percentage, no matter what. And the ones that have gone well have always been the top of the percentage. So it's pretty simple. Mm. They've got eight boats there. You've got your rank order. And then what your job is, is to try and get them up the rank order. So the lower ones, you don't, you don't try and slow the fast ones down clearly, but you try and get the boats closer and closer together as the training goes. So if you need to alter some of the training, that's what you need to do. They need to do more training to come up, then that's what they need to do. Because not, not every training program suits every person and we're in a team sport. So you need to be aware of that. And so basically it's monitoring the boat speed. And even in the motorboat, I have one of the GPS, the stroke, I think they're called stroke coach. Mm-hmm. Now they yeah. seem to change the name on every, every now and then. Okay. Stroke coach. Well, I've got, you set the motorboat at a speed on that. And that's not so easy to do because it only needs to alter very slightly on the throttle and, and the boat speed will jump enormously. So you, you can monitor from the motorboat basically by matching the speed of the boat there, but you need to do it over a couple of minutes work it out and you can work out what they're rowing out or you can ask them after the piece. But the live feed they used to have, you can't get that anymore. So there was a live feed to the motorboat and I never had one really. Yeah. So, <laughs> excuse me. You're right. How do you, yes, how do you basically bike speed. Boat speed, right? How do you balance the results from the ergo testing to results on the water? What, I mean, you know, you see some guys pull some massive ergs and 
Yeah, Erks no float. <laughs> okay, well, that's a clear answer, Marty. Yeah, Erks no float. The other thing is that I've seen guys who pull massive ergos that can't move a boat. And I've seen guys, okay, if you take uh, the quad, the Swiss quad, we had two Olympics that came fifth and not big guys at all. Ergs were, were not great. I think there's probably one or two under six minutes. They still came fifth at the Olympic Games in a quad, which is a really highly contested and, and hard event. And that's because they were bloody good boat movers. One of them was an ex-lightweight and Simon Sturm, who's not very bigger, wasn't much bigger than when he was a lightweight. And he was in the bow seat in both quads and uh, might even rode another Olympics after that, actually. And Christian Soffer is, was not a very tall person, but he's pretty solid, but they, they and their ergs weren't great, but they could move a boat. And so it was quite surprising how quick they could go. At, at one point, they were one second off the world record at, at that. Because if they got a tailwind, they were really good but mm. most of the time. And we'd finish around about fourth or fifth if there's no wind or a headwind. But if we got a tailwind, we'd finish second a number of times in World Cups. So, yeah, it's the ERG. It's a good indicator for training, but the 2,000-meter the ERG doesn't alter much. You know, like you can't use it to say, okay, We'll do a 2000 meter erg this month. We'll do one next month. It might change. It might change next year, but it really won't change. And I don't, I don't understand the reason why, because the, the boat speed and the, and the rest of it can change. Mm. So you can improve yet The ergo stays the same. That's coming down to technique then mate, is it? And, and moving the boat. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a rowing is an endurance sport, right? It's a strength endurance sport and it's a technical sport. So if you take cycling example, because I've done both sports, take cycling, the difference between cycling and rowing. And I know guys, because when I was at the Toronto Institute of Sport, we had a really strong cycling program. Cadell Evans came through it. Simon Clark, who won the, a number of races and also won the climbers jersey in the, in the Velta and uh, Simon Gerrans, who won three stages on the Tour de France, all came through the, the cycling program. And I know a lot about the cycling and those guys work their ass off, right? That's why they're good cyclists. It's not because they've got the engine, right? They really dedicated themselves to cycling sport where it's not as technical. It is technical, particularly on the track, but it's not as technical. And so you can get a guy who, if he's willing to really train hard, they can get a long way in cycling. You can get a rower who's really willing to train hard, but has not got the technique will get nowhere. And that's the difference. It's, it's the technique. It's a technical, very technical sport. And the top guys, you'll see them rowing all different ways, but basically, if you look at the blade, you see if they're going fast, the blade's doing the right thing. So you can have your body moving different ways, but if the blade works really good and the timing's good, then you know, and this is in the fast boats. So I've seen some pretty ugly gold medalists. I mean, if you look at uh, Redgrave and Pinson, right? When we were with Britain, we decided to do a model of the technique and I went out and videoed Redgrave and Pinson. Well, Redgrave was coming forward and letting go with the outside hand. So that didn't really work, you know, when he's paddling, not when he's racing, but he let go with the outside hand and Pinson was all over the shop with his body. But as soon as they went to hard, right, you forget about the bodies, the boat used to go mm. and uh, they could keep going and they could balance it really well, but the boat would be flopping around everywhere. Same with some of the fours that they had. Like I remember the, the four that won in 2004, you see him coming down the track paddling and the, the boat would be unbalanced and flopping around everywhere. But as soon as they raced, it was balanced, but the blade work was really good. Mm. And so now Jürgen's not a great technical coach necessarily, but he's a bloody good, he's got a good eye for who goes in the seat and what the blade's doing. And also he knows how to train. Mm. So yeah, that's, that's sort of an indication of, 
of how technical this sport is. But in saying that, as I said, you can do it all different ways. With the top guys, it's the same thing. The blade works really good. So Marty, one of, one of the questions from the Masters was asking how you like your crews to warm up before a race, and especially if you're waiting for a long time at the start for a head race, like the Scullers head or the head of the child. Okay. You're sitting around for 10, you know, 15, 20 minutes waiting for your number to come up. There's not a lot you can do on that. I mean, you're just stuck with it on that. But a race warm-up for us is we go out probably 40 minutes before, so you've got plenty of time, okay? And paddle for probably the first 20 minutes and start. We always start off the backstops. So mm -hmm. you go off the pontoon, start just with the arms, then with the arms and body, then quarter slide, half slide. And I must say, quarter slide and half slide is the most valuable exercise you can do. I'll tell you in a moment why, or one of the things that showed me how important it is. But the, and then we work our way to full slide. And then usually we do a running piece of 20 strokes and then we do some starts. So normally it's two, four stroke starts and then a 20 stroker before, and then paddle, sit and wait. But usually, obvi obviously you try and keep moving if you can, but there's always delays. The guys just have to get used to that. And for head racing, it's impossible. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's not what it can do. You can just move up and down on your seat. That's about it. But going back to quarter slide and half slide, because we do a lot of that. When I was coaching the gears, I get a phone call every now and then because they, they've self-coached at home during the week and they come to Sarna on the weekends and then they'd have a training camp with us usually before the Worlds. But I get this phone call and it'd be, you have to come, to, you have to come down to Rojak, which is two hours away. If you come down to Rojak, we're not going to the World Cup. But why is that? Well, it's not going well enough. You have to come down. You have to come down and have a look. Come down and have a look. But I go down there and I'd spend, I would go off the, off the pontoon and we'd go just with the arms, then just with the bodies. Then I do quarter slide, do quarter slide for five Ks. And then we do with square blade. And then we do half slide for another five Ks, square blade. And then by that time we were near the boathouse, I say, right, now go in. Right, that's good. We're going, we're going to go and race. And that's all I had to do because they just weren't together. Yeah. And so they're trying to row. And so all I did was do that with square blade and that worked for them. And, uh, and that's how important that exercise can be. And then they got their confidence back and it was going well. So they went and raced the World Cup and won. So, and, you know, that's just one of the things that, you know, you pick up just by experience. I, I just learned that that probably helped them. And yeah. we did a lot of quarter slide, half slide and square blade work. It's really critical because that gets you, as I said, the stroke starts from the finish, not from the catch. Okay. Yeah. It's preparation going forward. And so the timing off the finish in a crew, for example, in a double or a quad or something like that is, is critical. And so the movement around the back is critical. So you'll see many different ways of moving around the back turn. Some people stop there and then some people have really fast hands. I remember back in 1986, I had the Australian under 23, eight and the senior A8 up in Canberra and Reinhold Barchi was coaching senior A8. And I was coaching senior B8 and we did a lot of work together. And after that, they won the world championship that year. So it was a good person, you know, good crew to train with. But when I looked at my crew and their crew, when we we're doing racing pieces, not let's say I was on the land doing tie, the, their eight looked like it was rating 32 and mine looked like it was rating 44. And yes. so, and, but you take the stroke rate and they both on 36 in the piece. And so how do they make that time? And I saw a lot of that on the weekend in particularly Turkey of all countries, you know, going really good with their juniors. They've got a new coach from, I think he's from Serbia. So he coached Serbia and Turkey and they, some of their crews, they're just Cox four 
we all looked at and it looked like I had an amazing amount of time on the slide. And then I saw them paddle. And what was with the Australian eight was that a guy, Steve Evans was straight Steve Australian Evans from Mossman. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So Steve Evans was really quick around the back. So the handle came in and went away at the same speed and then it was slow on the slide. And before that, when I was coaching the guys back in the club, you know, Jimmy and those guys, we were actually quite slow around the back and I've got videos of that. And then when they went in the Australian eight with, with Reinhold, they were fast around the back because that's what Steve did. So I learned from that. And then we started to get quicker and quicker around the back. And now it's sort of a medium speed, not as exaggerated as that, but that gave them time on the slide. So if you get the finish right, you've got to hold your finish in and then be nice and quick with the hands. It gives you more time on the slide. And that's why visually it'll look like 32 when you're on 36 yeah. and so on. So I learned that one. So, yeah. That was an amazing eight. I remember they had the wooden Mac on uh, blades, didn't they? And everyone else. Oh, we all went to those after that. Yeah. Don't worry. <laughs> Carl, yeah. something I don't know. Now, Marty, you've, you've, you've experienced some amazing uh, crews and rowers. What is it that you see highly successful rowers do consistently that others don't? I mean, is there a habit or behavior that you see with Jimmy Tompkins or Zeno or Sam Patton or others that you've observed that's consistent across the high performers? Yeah, they listen to the coach. Every one of those guys listen to whoever's coaching them and always has done. You know, they listen to the coach and they do do what the coach says. Now, when you when you're coaching a single, all those guys because they're very experienced, it's a partnership, right? And whenever you say you talk about we did this or we did that, and they do that same thing, and you'll see who's the tennis player, the Australian tennis player that won uh, Wimbledon, Ash Barty. Yeah, Ash Barty. Have you heard Ash Barty talk? Mm-hmm. He only ever talks we. He never talks. I did this, I did that, we did this, we did that. That's what the top guys do as well, right? And particularly Zeno as well. Yeah, and he talks about it, you know, when we were obviously together, coach, I was coaching him, it was, we did this, we did that, and I did the same thing. So when I talk about it, we did that, that's the, that's the thing. Those guys, it's a partnership and it's not a dictatorship. You know, you do discuss things with them, but at the end of the day, you have to make a decision. Yeah. So for example, with Zeno for the Olympic final, we sat down and we discussed what the Olympic final was going to look like, what we were going to do in the Olympic final, what we discussed before, what we did in the heat, what we did in the semi and who we were racing, because I think we had chop in the heat. So we had to beat chop who was defending world champion. And, uh, and we did that. And then we did it in the semi, but the final was an interesting one. So those that haven't seen that final, I'll describe what our tactics were. And you have a look and see if it, it was 96 Atlanta you're talking about. Yep. That's right. So we sat down, the two of us, and thought, okay, where are the strengths and weaknesses for this final? Who do we have to beat and everything else? And so we came up with a plan where the idea was we get out of the blocks and we'll be in the top four at 500 meters, right? That's all we want to be in is top four, not in front, but top four. And then in the next 500, the idea was to row himself because he'd never won a medal, right? So this is his one chance to win a medal. So the ultimate aim or the aim of this race was to get a medal. That's the first priority. So in the second 500, the idea was to row himself into a bronze medal position. And if he felt that by the thousand meter mark, that he was in a bronze medal position, right. And, and a little bit further on down the track, then he should go for gold because he's sure he's going to get the bronze, right. We just threw everything in for the gold from that point on. And that's how the race evolved. And, uh, if you look at Sydney, it was a different race. Mm-hmm. So Sydney. And so that. The two of us decided that was a plan and he stuck exactly to that. When you talk to these top guys, they stick exactly to the plan, right? There's nothing, nothing comes out of the, out from outside during the race. 
know, they do have to react if someone moves, but you have your plan and they're able to stick to it. And they've got the confidence to do that. But if you take Sydney's example against Waddell, it was a different type of race. So we beat Waddell in, I think it was Vienna the first time. So Zeno took a year off after and retired actually after 96. And he rang me up in 97, uh, end of 97 and said, oh, I want to come back. I said, how much do you weigh? I think it's 123 kilos. My goodness. Yeah. So you was pretty puffy in the face and took him probably two years to get back to race weight, really that, which is 96 around there or 94. And anyway, so we hadn't, we got, he got the silver medal in, I've got to remember all these, 98, 99 behind Waddell. Waddell was well clear of everyone. So the tactic for 2000 was that we'd, we'd use something completely different. We'd let him go a bit. We'd go off hard and then let him go on the third five. And then we'd attack him in the last five. So we did that in Vienna and, and we actually beat him. It's the first time he was beaten. And so going to the Olympics, we were going to use the same tactic. So the idea was in the final, he'd go out with him at the thousand, till the thousand meter mark, probably lead him because he wasn't that fast in the first bit, but he was really good in the third five. And so the idea was to let him go in the third five, and then we'd have a go in the last five. But unfortunately, when we got to the thousand meter marks, and I said, he was feeling really good. So I thought I'm feeling great here. And so the two of them, I don't remember, I can't remember how much they took out of the rest of the field, but what's that third 500? You don't see the other crews because the two of them went hammer and tongs for that third 500. I think he got about a length, maybe a length and a quarter. And then from that point on, neither athlete, I'm pretty sure Rob said the same thing. They, they don't remember anything. Then I didn't know he got a medal at all in the last five, they completely blew the doors off each other in that race in the, in the first 1500. But you know, uh, so I got Silverman off the gold on that, but that's his choice during the race. And he had to, you know, that's great because that, that's what he chose to do and make that change. And because, you know, I can't row the boat for him and he knows how he felt, but he felt really good. Didn't feel so good, se you know, 700 meters later, but it was a, uh, it was a great race anyway. And Rob, you know, who knows, Rob probably would have won anyway, even with that tactic. So, mm -hmm. but uh, that's Zeno's choice and, you know, we live with that. So Marty, little. key advice, listen to the coach. What advice should athletes ignore? Outside influences, right? So someone that's not coaching them, trying to give them advice on what to do. If you want to do that, then they can coach you. Simple as that. We have a bit of that in the juniors sometimes, you know, the club coaches are there, they're coaching them during the week. So that's fine, but uh, they like to interfere a little bit or they like to change something. So the kids will turn up on the weekend. So, oh, the coach said this, should I do that? And no, I don't think so. And so once they're in a team environment, it's, that's hard with juniors, senior B and things, they're usually in the squad. So it's not, that doesn't happen, but you do get outside influences. And so athletes need to listen to their coach and not to outside. You know, if you, if you want to listen to someone outside, then he can coach you. It's pretty simple. So don't come and join us. He can go and coach you. See how you go there. Take the decision. If you're going to be in the national team, focus on what the national team wants. And yeah, or even your club coach. You know, if that's all you're aspiring to, or you're a master and you've got a coach, then listen to him. Don't look on the internet and find, you know, oh, that little bit, I'm going to try that. I'm going to try that. I'm going to try that, which everyone does. We all do that. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's Dr. Bigger. It's like, yeah. But that's why we interview people like you, right? So we get the, the good oil. Marty, wrapping up now, if you could only have uh, one piece of exercise equipment, what would it be? What would you recommend people get? Oh, that's a hard one, really. I reckon an ergo. Because, you know, you can't row all year round in most places. So an ergo is pretty important. If you're, if you're a master's rower or, or any rower, 
you should have an ergo at home really. And because don't, you don't then have to go down to the club and you, you know, okay, you feel you get home from work. Oh, maybe I'll do an ergo for three quarters now. And then the endorphins kick in, you feel better. Yeah. Right? And you can go in all weather with an ergo. Yeah. It's good advice. What's a favorite workout you like to give your athletes uh, three or four weeks out from a, their main race to give them a, a boost? Oh, we usually do a 2000 meter piece about then and, and time it. I mean, that's a, that's a funny one with Zeno. That was good too, in uh, Oak Ridge in Tennessee. So yeah. 10 days before the Olympics, we did our second 2000. Okay. So he was lined up against the gears and handicap and he said, he thought he was going pretty good. So he waited for the gears. So he's gone out not too hard and thought, oh, what I'll do is I'll wait for him about the thousand meter mark, you know, just ease up and then I'll go with him you know, to get really good pace. Sadly, the gears were a bit quicker than him. So it was a complete waste of time. We wasted that 2000. I don't know what he was thinking because they won the gold medal 10 days later as well. So you get a lightweight, a lightweight double at the time was 616 was the time. I think the, the single world record was probably 630. (laughs) So I thought he'd wait for him. So like I gave him a head start, but he wasted the head start. But anyway, it didn't really matter. So you'd only do a few two thousands before the main race or two, two. That's it. Yeah. Is there any, sorry, go on. The rest of them, you just do thousands and things like that. That's all you need to do. Because usually, for example, even talking to the genius the other day, like we know that our guys are pretty fit. So the idea is to get out in the first thousand because I know the second thousand look after itself. And so that's like one of the tactics. So practicing that first thousand is pretty important. I mean, Jürgen said that. I think his thing was 85% of all crews that win Olympic gold medal are in front of 500 meters. Right. Now that may have changed, but that's what he used to quote. So that there's a bit of a lesson there, isn't it? And yeah. it probably is the case. Yeah. That's an interesting one, mate. What's any new rowing gear that you've, you've come across that you're testing, that you got your eye on that you think could be interesting? Not really for me because I, I'm not in the area of purchasing things. And really in this latest job, I mean, it's really, you know, that's the equipment you're given. And I've looked around a little things, not, not, not changing anyway. We've got good equipment. We've got good boats, we've got good oars. I mean, the other thing the kids were asking me about the other day was about the Macon, the Macon blade, because we've got a girl in the under 23s that rows with Macon blades, right? And back in, when they first came out, like at the Olympics in 92, the Germans did all the biometric testing on the big blade and the Macon blade, right? And they decided the Macon blade was better. So they turned up at the Olympics and came third in the heat. And I think they lost to, oh, I think Canada and I can't remember. It wasn't seeded in those days. So like Canada, I can't remember who got the silver medal, but anyway, so they got third in the heat. So they swapped to the big blade, panicked, they swapped to the big blade and got third in the final point behind exactly the same two boats, exactly the same distance. So we could never prove that the Macon was, for example, any, any slower or, and the big blade any better. And I did a test with one of my scholars. So we we're down in a Livorno in a, a thing, and this Mikkel, Mickey Benninger who won a silver in the lightweight single around that back, probably 95, I think it was. So what we did, we put a Macon blade in one side, we single with the right gearing and a big blade in the other, both of them Dreisigakers, right? big blade in the other. And then I got, he was rowing in the canal and I got him to close his eyes and the boat went dead straight. So what does that tell you? Like, there's probably no difference. It's just the gearing's different on it and things. And you can get hold of it. Like the blade's shorter. If you remember, it was 12 foot six mm. for a Macon blade. 
I was or twelve seven sometimes eight or twelve eight. I don't even know what it is in feet for a big blade anymore in metric, but yeah. So there's, it's interesting that, you know, maybe Macon will come back. Who knows? Who knows, mate? They've got the comps. They've got all versions. Marty, any books that you've gifted most other rowers or, or recommend that people pick up and have a read? I mean, you, you mentioned Steve Fairburn. He's a, it's a great book. If you can get one, they're as rare as hands. Yeah. Well, maybe it's on the internet, isn't it? it? Must be transcribed on the internet somewhere. I don't know. There'd be pictures. Yeah, Tom O's book, Paul Thompson's book's pretty good. Thompson, he's got a good yeah. well, I think he's got two. That's what I'd recommend as well. And there's Vulcan Aldous book, which I put a chapter in, but that's all got that, all that stuff's still relevant, still really relevant. I've got it up there. That's rowing faster. Good yeah, book. yeah, that describes what I did in lactate testing with Zeno and the others, but also a lot of the other good coaches of the time are in there and they're still, all the stuff's still pertinent. Now, some of the training's changed clearly, but the, uh, the, the principles are the same. That's what I recommend. Yeah, mate, we're finally, is there anything I haven't asked you that perhaps I should? I mean, we could talk for a long time, I guess, but. Not really. I don't think so. I think we've probably covered most things because I could go on forever as you, because I'm paid to talk, you know. <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> That's what I say to the guys, the other guys, I said, my friends at home, they say, yeah, talk a lot. And so I was paid to talk for 40 years. Now I do it for free. Ah, oh, brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Where can people find you, mate? On, on LinkedIn or Facebook or? Not on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. Okay. Um, not that I look at it that often, really. I'm not, I'm not a big one for social media yeah. at all, but yeah, I mean, someone or on email. Yeah. Good on you, Marty. Well, thank yeah, you very much for your time, yeah. mate. Look forward to connecting with you again. And uh, thank you for taking time out to speak with us tonight. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Good on you okay. Take care, Marty. Thank you. Join me next time when I'll be talking with one of the rowing world's most interesting people. And if you like this episode, you can subscribe so you never miss an episode in the future. Oh, and please, if you like it, leave us a five-star review. That really helps us out. You can find out more about our unique training system and high-performance coaching by visiting whchambers.com.